we have tried each time that I've spoken on this to just read this this chapter, which is this prayer of Christ. And uh, I think we'll do that again this evening, but I thought maybe I would have a couple of the men read it uh, this evening. So, uh, let's see, Mason, if you would read the first uh, 13 verses, and then uh, Mike Clary, if you would read from 14 to the end. Thank you. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask for your help as we look into this precious portion of Scripture, this prayer of Christ. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and use it in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said I think the first time that this prayer is all about relationships. There's an incredible amount of uh, interaction talk uh, spoken of in this uh, prayer of Christ. And I had the idea of trying to make a chart. Now, normally I'm not too much on charts, but I had an, the idea of making a chart, you know, showing the relationship of the Father and the Son with the apostles and then to the world and to the church and, well, I'm just going to show you something here. I, got, I only got to verse 9, and I had so many little lines going all over the place, showing the relationships, that I said, better not do this. <laughs> got, got so uh, uh, detailed. But it does, uh, I would encourage you to try it, because it does make you really uh, think about the various uh, relationships that are spoken here and, and uh, the the interaction, the interconnectedness uh, of the various uh, people or, or groups spoken of. So, I don't know, I might, I might try to refine it yet and see if I can make it so it's not quite so complicated. But it, it is, it's worth doing just in terms of trying to analyze the, the prayer and give you a better understanding of some of the interactions. Anyway, um, it is an amazing prayer and one that uh, is so profound in what's... I mean, it's, it's simple. The language is simple. But the concepts are so profound and deep. And we'll see just a few of those here again tonight. But this was uh, given at the time of the upper room discourse when Christ was there with his uh, disciples right before the time of the crucifixion. And I just want to give you the basic outline again so you remember kind of what what uh, we're aiming at here. We said that verses 1 through 5 has to do with the relationship of the Son and the Father. Verses 6 through 19 has to do with the relationship of the Son and the Father to Christ's immediate disciples, what we normally call the apostles. And then verses 20 through 26 has to do with the relationship of the Son and the Father to all believers from then on, what we would normally call the church, or you could put it this way, us. 
And it's a good way of thinking about about this prayer because this was prayed for us. Um, you see that change there in verse 20 where he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is the immediate disciples there with him, but for those also who would believe in me through their word. Well, that's, that's every Christian from then on. They believed in terms of what was written. And, it, you know, sometimes, uh, at least it was a few years ago, a big thing of tracing back your roots, you know, in your, in your family. But it's, it's interesting to think about that in relationship to this prayer here because our roots go back to these apostles. We believe because of the word that was given to them and that they, they wrote and gave to the world and to us. We can trace our roots back to the apostles and the words that they received from Christ. Well, um, if you have been here the last couple times, you know that we are into the second section now, verses 6 through 19, and we are actually on verse 9. So I'm not going to try to review all what we've said. I'm just going to pick up with verse 9. And I'm just going to read this small section here again that we're going to look at tonight. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I think that's as far as we'll try to cover tonight. So in this section we're looking at here that I just read, Jesus begins to pray or to intercede specifically for his immediate disciples. He's told us some things about them in the verses prior to this. Uh, beginning with verse 6, but now he's interceding specifically for them. And uh, as you read down through the rest of the prayer, you're going to see six main things that he prays concerning them. Now this is down through the whole rest of the prayer, not just the part we looked at tonight, but I just want to mention these to you. Six main things he's praying for concerning his disciples. And... For us also. He prays that they would be kept, that they would be sanctified, that they would be perfected in unity, that they would be with him in glory and see his glory, and that they would be so united with him that the love that the Father has for the Son would be in them. Those six things. And to me, anyway, uh, there's almost like a, a increasing degree of difficulty in really comprehending what he's saying. 
uh, it's increasingly hard to comprehend as we go down through those six things. Just, I mean, we ha I think we have a somewhat of a feel for what it means for Christ to keep us. But then you go to the next one, sanctified. Well, we know that means to be made holy. That's getting a little more hard to comprehend, that we actually can be made holy, sanctified. How about this one? Perfected in unity. I mean, we, we know something about unity, but the idea of being perfected in unity, now, now it even gets more uh, hard to comprehend. That we would be with him in glory and see his glory. I mean, now we're talking about things we hardly know what we're, when we use the words. We hardly know what we're saying. And then lastly, that we would be so united with him that the love that the Father has for the Son would actually be in us. Well, to me anyway, it just seems as the prayer goes along, the things get more profound, more uh, difficult to really get a grasp of. I don't know. How can our minds deal with some of these things that Jesus is praying concerning us? praying about and asking the Father and will be a reality because this, this is Jesus praying and his prayers will be answered. What we're seeing in this prayer is something of the deep mystery of the triune God who wants us to share in his holiness, in his unity, in his glory, and his love. But tonight, anyway, we're just going to look at the first one, to be kept. Jesus prayed that we would be kept, guarded and kept. So, verse 9. First thing we see here is that this is not a general prayer for everybody. He wasn't just praying out in general. It is a prayer specifically for his disciples, those given to him by God. That's who he's praying for in this prayer. Not to say that there wouldn't be some other prayers of Christ that would apply out broader than this, but this prayer, he was praying for those who had been given to him by God. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Our message to everyone is a message of repent and believe the gospel. But this prayer was for those who had believed. You see, he's already said that in verse uh, 7 and 8. He said, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So this prayer was for these people he's talking about, these who had received and understood and believed the words of Christ. Uh, and what he prays for them is that they would be kept. I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. That's what he's praying 
Now, why was he doing that? Why was that such a burden on his heart? Well, he tells us why. He said, I, I guarded them while I was with them. I kept them, protected them in your name, Father, while I was on the earth. But now I'm coming back to you. This is what he's, he's looking forward here. I'm, I'm looking past the time of the crucifixion even to the time will I be in glory with you again. So I'm coming back to you. Well, let's read it. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you had given me, and I guarded them. So he says, when I was with them, I was taking care of them. Now I'm coming back to you and... I'm asking you to keep them in your name. These disciples had had their shepherd right there with them. But now he was going to be gone and he was asking, Jesus was asking that they would be kept and preserved from evil, from the evil one. You see that a little bit longer. And I think included in this keeping, I mean, there's so many things you could put under that category I guess I suppose the big one would be just kept from falling away kept from false doctrine kept from being overcome by temptation kept from being crushed by persecution all these things that have been the, the lot of the church down to the centuries Jesus has already taken care of that because he's prayed that his disciples would be kept now, there's no question that these particular disciples here that he was talking about were weak and needed this prayer. Uh, they'd prove that over and over. But Jesus says that he asked that they would be kept in the Father's name and that they would continue to be kept in his name. Now, what does that mean? There's a, there's a phrase that comes up a number of times. I think I pointed this out last time. This, uh, in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. So now he's praying that they would be kept in his name. What's that mean? Well, I think there's two aspects to what he's uh, speaking of here. And... It's kind of hard to distinguish them, to, to separate them, but let me just uh, try to uh, tell you what I think is included in this. We said that last time that the name, he's talking about the name throughout this uh, prayer, denotes a, the, the characteristic or the attributes. The n name of God denotes the character of God, the attributes of God. In fact, uh, he said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. In other words, he manifested the character of God, the attributes of God. Um, he said, he, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, he was a manifestation of the character. Christ was a manifestation of the character and attributes of God. So he manifested his name to these disciples. So in that light, the idea would be um, keep, keep them in terms of your, your power, 
your attributes of power and love and wisdom and all those type of things, keep them safe in your name, you see, according to your power, your love, your wisdom. Uh, in fact, the uh, New International Version actually translates the verse this way, protect them by the power of your name, speaking of that attribute of power. Keep them, protect them by the power of your name. But with that is also the idea that they are to be kept in loyalty to uh, the Father. Keep them in allegiance to the revelation of your character they have seen in me. So it's kept in and by, you might say. Uh, if you combine the two, you might put it like this. So keep them by your power, Holy Father, in full adherence to your character, which I have manifested to them. Keep them by your power. Keep them loyal to full adherence to your character. Well, let's, I want to look at verse 10 here. Because I think this is an incredible verse. Well, let's, let me start here. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then it goes into this thought. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. So, when he says, they are yours, speaking of the disciples, he's already said that, that uh, God has given these men to him. And one of the missions, the assignments, that uh, the work that was given Christ to do was to keep them. And so he says, they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. <clears throat> so this is a statement of the oneness of the Father and the Son. The Father withholds nothing from the Son, and the Son withholds nothing from the Father. They're in total unity in everything. But that's just part of it. There's a total unity, but nevertheless, there is a distinction because there is still the aspect where he says, yours and mine. Now, isn't that amazing? He says, everything that's yours is mine and everything that's mine is yours, and yet there is the distinction between yours and mine. Uh, what am I getting at? Well, I'm trying to say again that this speaks of the unity and diversity that there is in the Trinity. There's a total unity in everything, yet there is a distinction of persons. They don't merge into one, you see, where the Father is the Son or the Son is the Father. That distinction is always there. It's the, it's the incredible doctrine of the Trinity that uh, is being spoken of here. When he says, thine and mine, there's a definite distinction of the persons. Now, um, you might say, is that important? That is very important. Because if you, if you start 
if you lose that, you start getting off into a heresy in one way or another. That's why, clear back at the time of the Athanasian, Athanasian Creed, they specifically dealt with this. And uh, I think it's a good, uh, I'm just going to quote a little bit of the Athanasian Creed to show that uh, this, this portion of Scripture, verse 10 here, fits so well with what was said in this creed. It says, We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. See, they're distinct. There's one person of the Father, one person of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And that's, this is a, a beautiful verse to, to show that that's very scriptural. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. The distinction of persons Yet the oneness, the unity, that's there. Now, it says all things, and I think that could encompass everything. All things that are yours are mine, and mine are yours. But he's specifically, when he says that, he's specifically talking about the disciples because he says in verse um, 9, for they are yours. So that's the thing he's specifically speaking about, which is the, the disciples. And then he says, and when he says, I have been glorified in them, he's again, at the verse, end of verse 10, he's talking about the disciples. I have been glorified in them. Uh, those 11 disciples. I say 11, and you see, you know why already. Uh, from reading the scriptures, and it's brought out here in just a moment in these verses. Uh, they were the fathers. They belonged to him. He gave them to the Son. The Son kept them and was glorified in them. Now, as we pointed out last time, Jesus says some very positive things about his disciples in this prayer. Uh, especially considering what we know about them from the Gospels. Uh, it's incredible that he says some of the things he does here. And here he says he's been glorified in them. And you might ask, how could he say that, considering some of the things that they said and did and their misunderstanding of a lot of things? How could he say that he's been glorified in them? As pathetically weak as their faith was, it was real. And a real faith will glorify Christ. Even a weak faith that's real will glorify Christ. When the vast majority of their countrymen had hated and rejected Christ, these apostles had brought glory to him by seeking to do what he said. And they failed. They misunderstood a lot of things. But they were real, and they did desire to follow him. And it brought glory to him. 
He sent them out. They went out. They didn't always understand exactly what they were supposed to do, but they were seeking to follow him and to take his message uh, out to the world. Let me read here what F.F. F. Bruce said. He said, Their unintelligent questions and interruptions as he talked to them in the upper room show how far, showed how far they still were from appreciating their master's purpose or the seriousness of the hour which had come upon him. But he looked at them with the insight of faith and hope and love and realized their present devotion and their potential for the future. In themselves they were weak indeed, but with the Father's enabling grace and the guidance and illumination of the Holy Spirit, they would fulfill the mission with which they were now being entrusted and bring glory to their master in fulfilling it. So confident is of this is he that he speaks in the perfect tense, I have been glorified in them. And I like the way J.C. Ryle put it. He says, Let us mark here that the weakest faith and love to Christ brings him some glory and is not overlooked by him. The weakest faith, if it's real, you see, if it's real faith, if it's real love for Christ, it will bring him some glory and is not overlooked by him. So don't despise any of Christ's little ones who believe because Christ doesn't. On the other hand, there is a false faith. One who looks like a disciple but is really not. Even among Christ's first followers, there was Judas Iscariot, who Jesus calls in this section we're looking at, the son of perdition. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus kept all those whom the Father had given him. He didn't fail in that. This is what he's saying. I've kept those that you've given me, Father. But there was one in their midst whose character and destiny was totally different than the others. And he was called the son of perdition in this section, son of destruction, one who was to perish, a child of hell, only fit to be lost by reason of his own wickedness, one who lived in great light but deliberately chose darkness. Jesus, early on in the time of having, having these disciples following him, called this one a devil. Let's look back at that. John chapter 6. Jesus had some hard things to say, and some of those who said they were disciples, left him. Verse 66 of chapter 6, As a result of this, many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, 
You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, right even there, right there is an example of these, these disciples glorifying him, you see. They, they, they knew one thing, they didn't have anywhere else to go. They were putting their trust in this one, in Christ. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. But then Jesus says this, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So even um, back then, and Jesus was already saying of this one that he is a devil. Uh, What did you have then? What you had was a devil disguised as a disciple. Fooling everyone. The other, when when Jesus talks about this later there in the upper room, nobody had the other disciples didn't have the idea. Well, yeah, we know who that is. That's Judas. They didn't have any idea. Uh, he was one that was not given by the Father to the Son. And the, the Son, and when he's praying that that they would be kept, he wasn't praying that for this one because this was not one that had been given to him by the Father. Um, Now it says here that what took place was just as the Scriptures foretold. And the Scripture, I think, that is being referred to is back in Psalm 41.9, but you don't have to turn back there to read it. And the reason I'm fairly sure this is the one Uh, that was on Jesus' mind here as he prayed is because he just spoke to the disciples about it uh, a few minutes earlier in John 13. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 18 because that's where the scripture is that that he's talking about. But I want to read a a portion here down to verse 30 because I want to bring out some points from this. So, verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now that had been, I mean, they had been eating bread together. They'd been out for three years, walking together, ministering together, and, you know, they were eating their meals together. So it fits that way, but there's another way that this fits also, and I want to bring that out. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur... You may, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a lost know of which one he was speaking 
there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He leaned back thus on Jesus' bosom and said to him, Lord, who is it? Then Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said, said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should be, give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now, in the past, when I've read that, I thought, what, why the emphasis on this morsel? It's mentioned over three or four times here, gave him the morsel, after receiving the morsel. Uh, that, uh, but you see, it goes back up to this, this scripture. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, I think it's important to emphasize that Judas was not lost in order to fulfill the scriptures. But the scripture was fulfilled by the loss of Judas. What do I mean by that? Well, he was not a robot set in motion to fulfill God's word. He was responsible, a responsible person made in the image of God who suppressed the light, continual light, great light, more light than most people have. A responsible person made in God's image who suppressed the light, even the light of Christ's final act of kindness and gesture of fellowship as Jesus gave him the morsel. See, this was an act of fellowship. This was an act of kindness to this one, offering him this morsel. But he didn't receive that in terms of what any, any sense of, of, I need to respond to the love and kindness and words of this one that's doing this for me. Rather, he suppressed even that last bit of light and responded instead to Satan. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. And it's, uh, I think, I, just the way the scripture puts it is so graphic. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. See, if you reject the light, you go into the night. The lights went out on the way to hell for Judas and the scriptures 
were fulfilled. So what you have in this section, this little part about this son of perdition, is the incredible teaching that runs throughout the Bible of, of God's sovereignty. I mean, he's got it recorded in Scripture thousands of years ahead of time, and yet man's responsibility. <coughs> man's responsibility for rejecting the light. And prayer, prayer itself is a testimony of, of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. So even in this one example here of this this deceptive disciple, you see that great mystery of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Well, uh, there's another important theme in this section that I don't want to try to take on tonight because it runs through the rest of uh, the uh, prayer here. But it is found in the uh, last part of verse 11, that they may be one even as we are. That's a major theme uh, down through the rest of this section, one of the major themes. So we'll start, we'll, we'll deal with that in one of the later messages. Well, I think that's all for now, but I just would say that what he says... Uh, concerning his disciples here. I have been glorified in them. Should be the desire of every Christian that our lives would be for the glory of God. And uh, I just want to leave you with that encouragement again that uh, if our faith is real, if our love is real, it may be weak, and yet it will bring glory to God. That was the case of the disciples, and that's been the case of every disciple uh, down through history. Some have a little, strong, a little bit stronger faith and love than others. But if it's real, it glorifies the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father, we... Uh, Again, thank you for this prayer. We thank you for the incredible things that were prayed for the disciples and by way of them for us. And we ask that you just teach us as we meditate and think on what's contained here. Um, pray that you would make these things real to us for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If anybody wants to try to make one of these charts and uh, let me see what you come up with, I'd be glad to look.
I only, I, again, there is a value, a value in doing that, and it causes you to really dig in and try to analyze the relationships. Uh, so that might be one way of, of um, kind of helping you get some thoughts going related to this prayer.